This is the Josh Hammer Show. Huge news from the Colorado Supreme Court as it pertains to Donald Trump's continuing legal dramas and all of the 2024 presidential election fallout. We'll get to that a little later in the show. But before then, let's talk about what's happening in my life. So there has been a huge change in my life since the last time that I recorded, that I spoke with y'all, and I am now a married man. We spoke about it on the show last week. We spoke about the the meaning of marriage, the the Jewish conception of marriage, the the Jewish approach to dating, trying to find your spouse, trying to find your soulmate, how your values have to be aligned and all of that. But it's now happened. I mean, that was all in anticipation of this multi-day affair culminating, of course, in the actual marriage itself on Sunday, December 17th. And, you know, for the first time as I talk into the microphone to you guys, I'm wearing this this gold band on my left-hand ring finger, something that I have not entirely gotten used to yet, All, although my father and father-in-law say that I'll, I will get used to it very quickly there. And, uh, you know, I said a, a week-long affair. We had a, a number of events. There was the bridal shower. And then, because my wife is of Moroccan Sephardic Jewish background, they, we had what's called a, a henna party, which is actually a Moroccan custom where everyone dresses up in kaftans. That's a traditional Moroccan Arab garb. And there's lots of treats and there's gifts exchanged. And then you get this actual henna stain. It's essentially an ink stain that you get in your hand. It's there for good luck. That was kind of the opening festivities. Then we had a, a beautiful Sabbath, a beautiful Shabbat um, in, in honor of, of the groom. That that would be me. Really special. My my old rabbi that I studied with when I lived in Dallas, Texas, flew in. And he was he and his wife were very much a part of that. And then the big and then the big uh, Baligan, as they say, Baligan is a Hebrew word that that roughly translates to to chaos. I think the more specific translation of it would be something that I probably cannot say on the air. But that was on Sunday. And I mean, what is there to say, guys? I mean, it was the most memorable, the most special day of of my life. I knew going up to it that I would be crying like a baby up there. That's kind of that's kind of who I am. I, I am very in touch with my emotions. I am uh, not the kind of guy who can kind of just look the other way and not bring whatever I'm feeling to the table. I try to do that, of course, for this audience on this very show there. But I don't think I anticipated the extent to which my emotions would just be running through me there under the chuppah. So the chuppah is the wedding canopy uh, under which a Jewish couple gets married. It is there for that exact reason, to, to resemble a, a canopy. You want to start kind of right there in that home kind of coddled environment. Um, and it, it has all sorts of other uh, symbols that the rabbis have discussed for many years now. And, you know, as my wife said, that was her dream chuppah, just the flowers and everything. It was really just quite spectacular there. And we had we had a singer, a man by the name of Avi Peretz, who was there, who was just singing this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Hebrew language songs as we were all walking down the aisle there. And, you know, in that moment... Really, what you're supposed to do when you're standing there under the chuppah, what, what our rabbis say, is that you have something of a teleportal in that moment. You have a, a direct through line, a direct connection to Hashem, to God. And you want to treat that as such. You want to treat it with all of the solemnity. I mean, there's joy, of course. But you want to pray. It's a new beginning 
It's a time to atone for previous mistakes and to pray for a beautiful future. It really, in many ways, is actually resemblant of Yom Kippur, the holiest day on the calendar for Jews. So, you know, a lot of people asked me afterwards, they were like, Josh, I saw you kind of speaking. You were, you, your eyes were closed. You were kind of mumbling to yourself there under the chuppah, you know, for everyone there in the audience to see. And that's because I was praying. That, that's because in that, in that very moment, I, I was praying for, for simcha, for joy, for peace, for peace of the home, shalom bayit, and all the other things um, that a Jewish couple should be praying for in that moment. Of course, children and uh, grandchildren, God willing, as well in the future there. But, you know, what, what a spectacular and really just, just beautiful affair. When, when we finally got into, into the room itself, just the energy and the love and the emotion, the friends, the family, totally overwhelming. I mean, my only regret, of course, is that I was not actually able to even make it to say hi to any number of friends who, some of whom flew in from there. And I, and I feel terrible about that. I mean, you know, as the bride and the groom, you're constantly pulled in, in opposite directions. You're doing this, you're doing that. You're going out for the dance. So that was my only regret, but man, what an evening. And I think one of the ways that this evening was particularly special, as I've mentioned on the show before, my then fiance, now wife, is pretty Israeli. And one of the big questions kind of lurking in the background was, will her family be able to make it in? Because as you probably know, there's a pretty hot war going on in that country right now. And as it turns out, over 20 of them were able to make it in, including her oldest brother, who lives just a handful of miles from Gaza in a small city by the name of Netivot that, thankfully, God willing, was spared the carnage of October 7th, the Hamas Holocaust. But we didn't think that he was going to be able to make it in because his wife uh, is, is due in a few weeks with her fourth child, and things are still a mess down there in that part of the country. And he was even able to come in and surprise many people as well. And, you know, her Israeli family that I spoke to, they were so thankful and so grateful for the opportunity to escape everything that is happening in that country, everything that has been happening there since October 7th, to come here for a reprieve from a break from the madness and to join in our, in our happiness, to join in our joy, to join in, in our celebration. And really, I don't think the party would have been as great as it was, certainly without them. They contributed a lot of, of the spirit and the energy there. And I think many of them were, were, were sad to leave. And, and there's, they were sad to leave for the very simple reason, I think, that it was such a great celebration. But, but again, that a war is, is, is very much still going on there. And, you know, as it pertains to that war, the, the latest that we've seen is it looks like there's possibly going to be another exchange. There's possibly going to be another mass exchange of hostages for Palestinian Arab terrorists who have been convicted and are sitting in Israeli prison there. The impetus for this was the tragic incident a week or two ago where the IDF was trying to attempt a, a hostage evacuation mission in one of the subterranean terror tunnels there in Gaza and tragically killed three of their own, tragically killed three of the hostages in the dark tunnels, one can presume. They mistook them for Hamas terrorists. Just absolutely awful stuff. And it's, it's caused a lot of soul-searching, certainly for the public there. I mean, I think one, one of the many reasons, one of the leading reasons that the public has been so unified both there and in many parts of the world in support of this continued operation is to return the hostages. Recall that that was one of the two goals all along, was the safe return of the hostages as well as the actual military goal, which is the complete 
extirpation and, and eradication of the Hamas terror regime from Gaza at both a governmental and military level there. So we're anticipating a, another hostage exchange. I continue to be very skeptical of this. I was not a huge fan of this drip, 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 Qatari orchestrated hostage exchange the last time. I understand, of course, that if I had loved ones there in Gaza, my analysis would be entirely different. And recall, of course, from an American perspective, from an America first perspective, you might say, there, there are still a number of United States citizens who are currently held hostage there by Hamas in the terror tunnels of Gaza. We don't have an exact number. It's impossible to say. We estimate that it is around 8 to 10 or so. This has been all along, all along, this has been the largest American hostage crisis, specifically just an American hostage crisis since Tehran in 1970 time, at the time that the mullahs seized power from the Shah of Iran there, which, you know, that fact in and of itself has been the silver bullet that evinces or exposes, you might say, just the idiocy of those who have been totally skeptical of any U.S. role whatsoever by thumping their chest and saying, America first. But I mean, give me a freaking break. There are literally still roughly eight to 10 U.S. hostages currently held down there. So I don't mean to downplay this at all. I Obviously, we, we hope and indeed we pray that all the hostages are ultimately returned here. But I think if you had to ask not just Israel, but the United States, uh, other defenders, frankly, of, of, of freedom and justice and civility, those who stand against barbarism. You know, what is the actual goal of this conflict? The actual goal of this conflict, even more so than the hostages, even more so than that, would be the eradication of Hamas from Gaza. At the beginning of the war for a while, it looked like these two goals were mutually compatible with one another, that they actually went hand in hand. The tragedy over the past month or so has revealed that these two goals are actually somewhat at loggerheads with one another. Israel, in essence, is going to essentially have to choose. They're having to make a very, very difficult choice. And I fear that they might be making the wrong choice. I, I would, as, as I am not an Israeli citizen, but as an American who values the U.S.-Israel relationship, as someone who wants to see Israel thrive and prosper, who saw the beauty of the Abraham Accords and all that that did for regional stability and it helped American interests, as someone who believes that a stronger Israel is good for America, I would only encourage them to the extent that this horrible choice has to be made, has to be made, that you have to prioritize the extermination of the Hamas cancer from Gaza above all. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
If you've been paying attention to the conflict in Gaza since the beginning, you've probably noticed a few things. A few things outside of just Gaza, that is. And we're going to hold aside here, of course, Hezbollah, Lebanon as well. Let's hold all of that aside. The two major other things when it comes to the Middle East that you probably would have noticed at the beginning of this war, both of which directly pertain to American interests, American troops, and so forth. The first is that there have been well over 100 now attacks launched against U.S. military bases in Iraq and Syria from Iran-sponsored terror militias. So the Iranian regime for a long time now really gaining steam during the Obama administration when they were reaping the windfall of the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, which just gave them oodles and oodles of money to spread to sow chaos all throughout the region and the world. Really since then, Iran has established this incredibly elaborate network of proxy militias and terrorist organizations all throughout the region. So for a long time in Lebanon, Hezbollah has been a fairly direct Iranian proxy in Gaza, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is, you could call it a Hamas rival. I'm not sure if they're bitter rivals, but yeah, you can call it a rival. They are directly Iran-sponsored as well. Hamas, of course, themselves are sponsored to an extent. The Wall Street Journal broke that story within 36 to 48 hours of October 7th, actually saying that Hamas had trained in Iran. U.S. and Israeli intelligence have not yet confirmed that. But regardless, Iraq to this day is essentially a satrapy, is essentially an extraterritorial province of Iran. Bashar al-Assad, who continues to preside over Syria, he is very much a, a client of the Iranian regime and the mullahs there as well. So that's the first thing that you would have noticed. The first thing you would have noticed is that there's been fairly indiscriminate rocket fire and artillery shells and all of the above fired at not Israeli military bases, but American military bases, literally over 100 attacks now across Syria and Iraq. The Biden administration has not done a heck of a lot, has not done a heck of a lot to push back. They've fired a few symbolic ceremonial shots across the bow you might say, but they really have not taken much action at all, which is curious in and of itself because, again, this is not an allied country. This is not Israeli, Saudi, Emirati, Egyptian, whatever, military bases. These are American military bases. I mean, look, I, I, I am not a neocon. I am not someone who is trying to start war with, with Iran or anything like that, but the fact remains that the United States has God knows how many military bases stationed throughout the world. I mean, if you have one responsibility, I mean, you have to protect your people that you have sent over there. And, you know, thank God there's not been an American soldier, sailor, or Marine who has actually died in any of these attacks yet, but it seems like something of a ticking time bomb until that is resolved. The other thing that you probably would have noticed, and this directly pertains to Iran's sprawling network of funded militias and terrorist proxies is that the situation in Yemen is very, very, very bad. Yemen is a poor country. It is on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, but it sits at a very strategically important intersection of the global seas and really just a strategically important location, frankly, for a country in general. So it is where 
the Arabian Sea and the Gulf of Aden meet the Red Sea. So there is a choke point there. The the straits that connect the Horn of Africa to the Arabian Peninsula, it's essentially, it's essentially right there between Somalia and Djibouti and Yemen. It's a very narrow strait. And then you have the Red Sea going up to the Suez Canal that Egypt controls through the Sinai Peninsula. The, the relevance for the United States and for just the whole world in general is that a, a shockingly high percentage of the world's petroleum reserves, oil and natural gas, flow through these choke points, flow through the Red Sea, flow up through the Suez Canal. And, you know, Somali pirates have been an issue for a long time now. Somalia is in virtually every way possible a, a, a failed country, which is why you see all of these people fleeing for the United States, some of whom, like Ilhan Omar in Minneapolis, evince a shocking lack of patriotism for the country that brought them in, but that's a conversation for another day. Across the straits, though, you have the very troubled country of Yemen. Yemen has been in a hot civil war for a long time now. It's one of the more under-discussed conflicts across the world. It's essentially been a proxy war between the Saudis, who are Yemen's neighbors to the north, north and Iran. The Saudis have supported the pre-existing Yemeni regime, and the Iranians, true to form, have been supporting the, the Houthi rebels. Well, who are the Houthi rebels? Well, the Houthi rebels are a radical Islamist organization whose slogan, yes, literally their organizational slogan, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is essentially what it is, is glory to Allah, death to infidels, death to Jews, death to America. You know, lovely group of people, right? And the Houthis now have taken upon themselves since this conflict started, not merely to lob lots of missiles over to Israel that U.S. naval destroyers have thankfully intercepted, but they've been seizing and bombarding any number of commercial ships, oil ships there through the Red Sea, through the straits that connect Yemen to the Horn of Africa, that have nothing whatsoever to do with this conflict. They've been attacking and seizing ships that are flagged in Europe. There was a Norwegian ship that was that, that was fired at that was taken over. They've been firing at ships from the Caribbean. And this is all Iran-funded. Recall that Iran is the head of the snake, so to speak, for, for virtually all of the chaos, virtually all of the chaos currently afflicting this notoriously chaos-prone region that is the Middle East. And the situation right there in the Red Sea is so bad that many massive oil companies, BP, British Petroleum, companies like that, are now redirecting their commercial oil tankers to not even go through the Straits and the Red Sea or the Suez Canal. Instead, they're taking the long way around, the Vasco da Gama way around, for those of you who recall your history in, in, in middle school or high school, around South Africa, the southern tip of Africa. And, you know, that, that, that hasn't yet had an immediate shock effect for oil prices. It has not immediately spiked them, but that is coming. I mean, this is a huge deal, not just for Yemen, not just for Somalia, but it's a huge deal because this is going to have a huge effect on energy prices all across the world. Again, the U.S. is not the world's policeman, but historically, the U.S. Navy has had an outsized role, if nothing else, in protecting the free flow of things just like oil and natural gas on the high seas. The U.S. acting in tandem with our allies from the Saudis and the Emiratis to the European powers simply have to protect these chokeholds. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. 
grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So the Colorado Supreme Court broke the Internet this past week with their remarkable and frankly remarkably bad and remarkably dangerous ruling that held that Donald Trump is disqualified, is disqualified from being president of the United States and therefore should be off the ballot in the state of Colorado for January 6, 2021 related reasons. This is the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment argument, for those of you who are in the legal weeds enough to know that this is even an argument in the first place there. So let's back up a little bit. Earlier this year, there was a law review article, a piece of legal scholarship published by two law professors who I both know, one of whom was actually my two-time professor in law school, someone with whom I'm, I'm very friendly to to this very day, who I actually debated back when I was at the University of Chicago Law School back in February, a man by the name of Will Bode, and he co-authored an article with Michael Stokes Paulson, and they essentially argued that under a fairly obscure constitutional section, that would be Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, Donald Trump is disqualified, is disqualified from being president of the United States, that article met a, a, a powerful and I think ultimately persuasive response from Josh Blackman and Seth Tillerman where they rebutted that theory. The, the basic argument, the basic argument, and it's probably best if I just read section three of the 14th Amendment here. So the section, section three of the 14th Amendment reads in relevant part, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, a member of any state legislature or an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, and here's the key part, quote, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion— against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So the basic argument is that when Donald Trump was president of the United States, he, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States on January 6, 2021, or at least gave, quote, aid or comfort to the, quote, enemies of the United States. There are a lot of problems with this argument, 
there are, there are many, many problems. Again, for those of you who, who are really kind of legally nerdy enough to care about these things, I would strongly encourage you to read the response law review article from Josh Blackman and Seth Tillman, who essentially, uh, I, I think, adequately and persuasively rebut these points one by one. The first thing that you have to bear in mind here in order for, to accept this argument is that you have to accept that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is itself what lawyers call self-executing. In other words, you need to believe that this is the law itself regardless of any additional congressional legislation, that there is no actual statute from Congress needed to actually try to implement these words into practice there. This, this is somewhat legally obscure stuff, so I don't, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds there. But in the, in the past, Congress actually has passed legislation about how to deal with this very issue. And the fact that they felt compelled to do so is pretty powerful evidence that Congress itself does not view this as, quote-unquote, self-executing. So that is the first argument against this, is that Congress has thus far not passed a clean statute saying we thus codify Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, blah, blah, blah. Congress has not done that. So that is a huge problem right off the bat. Another problem right off the bat and as a lawyer myself, I find this, frankly, the most persuasive argument, is that the president of the United States is not, under the constitutional language, a, quote, officer of the United States. So there was a wonderful Wall Street Journal op-ed a few months ago, I believe it was in September, from former Attorney General Michael Mukasey, who kind of spelled out this argument at length there. Officer of the United States is a constitutional term of art. It actually appears all throughout Article One. In Article 2 of the Constitution, the articles that establish the Congress and the executive branch in particular. An officer of the United States refers to someone, typically an executive branch official or it could be a, a judicial official, but someone who takes an oath of office who is not the president of the United States. So, for example, in, in Articles 1 and 2, officer of the United States pretty clearly refers to cabinet secretaries, cabinet undersecretaries, things like that. But it does not include the president of the United States, and there are various textual reasons why it would be illogical to include president of the United States as a, quote, officer of the United States. But under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, really the only ones who are disqualified here, who are disqualified here, even kind of conceding for the sake of argument that maybe they have engaged in insurrection, will be senators, congressmen, or, quote, officers of the United States. So it, it, it doesn't even seem to apply to presidents in the first place. Again, officer of the United States is a term of art that does not seem to apply to the president of the United States. Probably the two most slam dunk reasons, though, why this simply has to fail. First, and this is kind of the, I think, most intuitive, obvious reason, recall that the 14th Amendment was written in 1868. It was one of the three Reconstruction Amendments along with the 13th Amendment that ended slavery and the 15th Amendment that enshrined voting rights for recently freed slaves. Obviously, it, it, it took a long time to ultimately vindicate those rights uh, in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, almost 100 years later, part of America's sh shameful history when it, when it comes to this part of its history. But the 14th Amendment was written, that is to say, in the aftermath and in light of the Civil War. So when John Bigham... Jacob Howard and the other congressmen and senators who were the lead draftsmen of the 14th Amendment, when they're here talking about, quote, insurrection or rebellion, what are they thinking of? They're thinking of the Confederacy. 
They're literally thinking of a four-year-long, sustained, mass-funded, mass-disseminated, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions and millions of people-style attempt to overthrow the government of the United States. Look, if you are so down the New York Times, MSNBC, CNN rabbit hole that you actually cannot tell the difference between the Confederate uprising against Abraham Lincoln and the Union and what happened on January 6, 2021, I mean, I, I, I actually do not know what to tell you. I mean, put another way, those grandmothers who wandered into the Capitol with their selfie sticks posting to their Facebook feeds about how they were close to Nancy Pelosi or whatever, if you think that that is synonymous with Stonewall Jackson and the others who are trying to kill Ulysses S. Grant and Lincoln and the Union Army, I mean, like, what is wrong with you? The term insurrection or rebellion, these have specific meanings. They are concerted, sweeping, societal attempts to overthrow a regime and replace it with another. Again, January 6, 2021 was, was many things, and it was a very bad and dark day for the country for sure. But to say that it was an insurrection, I, I mean, you were just out of your mind there. Finally, one of the ultimate reasons that I think this argument fails and why I predict that the Supreme Court of the United States will overturn it, I would predict with potentially as much as a seven to two majority, by the way. I think that this is such a slam dunk argument that I could even see Elena Kagan potentially joining John Roberts and the five conservatives here. You have to think about what this would actually entail in practice. What you have here would be various secretaries of state in all these states making ad hoc one-by-one one decisions as to who is eligible under this provision of the Constitution, again, absent congressional legislation that would implement it, making decisions all throughout the country. A Secretary of State here does it. Where does it stop? I mean, do county election boards start whipping this out and trying to determine who has engaged in quote-unquote insurrection, who is running for local dog catcher? I mean, it, it just sets a, a ridiculous, ridiculous precedent here. If you are at all concerned whatsoever about efficiency, about the need for a definitive single adjudicator and in order for this whole constitutional apparatus to be, to be workable here, then this, this has to utterly terrify you. You know, as a friend pointed out, there actually is a very clear and obvious way for it ends up being the Congress to decide who is and who is not eligible for the presidency. Do you know what that is? It's what Congress was actually doing on January 6, 2021, when it was actually tallying up the votes of the Electoral College and deciding who to accept. That is when the political branches actually make this determination over who is and who is not eligible. So this whole thing is just absolutely nuts. It, it is profoundly dangerous lawfare. And again, I say that as someone who is, is, is not exactly a, a MAGA Trumpista here. I, I, but but, but this, is, this is a very dark and dangerous road for the United States to go down. This is ultimately going to go to the Supreme Court there. I do predict that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to do the right thing there. I will say that it, it, it certainly is a reminder. It is a reminder as we approach the Iowa caucuses in a few weeks here where Ron DeSantis is trying to make his last stand. It is a reminder that Trump does have unique baggage. He obviously has unique baggage. And look, the prosecutions are invariably nonsense. This Colorado Supreme Court thing is complete and contemptuous nonsense. But 
they're coming at him with everything they've got there. And, you know, look, if you're getting ready to caucus there in Iowa in a few weeks there, maybe, just maybe, ponder the possibility that you might want a candidate who is laser focused on destroying the left and not necessarily laser focused on overcoming this legal jihad that he is facing from all across the political and legal spectrum. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. The Josh Hammer Show. It's ah! Hammer Time. Go! California okays new rules for turning wastewater directly into drinking water. So in San Diego and Los Angeles, they already have water agencies that are planning to recycle wastewater. Colorado pulled a similar stunt last year. You know, if you are so distrustful of your government, as I am, that you see things like this Missouri versus Biden big tech litigation going on, just to refresh your memories, what happened here was over the course of 2021, 2022, the federal government was essentially working hand in hand with the big tech oligarchs, Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, all the usual suspects, to swat down, to nuke individual accounts, and to algorithmically derank and essentially demonetize and penalize all sorts of people who had the chutzpah, who had the temerity to challenge regime orthodoxy when it pertains to both COVID-19, masking vaccine, all of the above and the integrity of the 2020 election in general. If you, like me, look at what the district judge, Judge Doty, down in Louisiana, described as the largest assault on free speech by the government in the history of this country, it's what he put, that was a judge who wrote that, in the Missouri versus Biden case. If you look at that, and your conclusion is, I trust my government enough to turn wastewater into drinking water? I mean, for God's sake, we're not going to go full Alex Jones like they're turning the frogs gay on this show or anything like that there. But if you are so just bend the knee and accept whatever the government tells you that you are ready to go along with this, man, I don't even know what to tell you. I mean, in, in this household, my wife and I are incredibly distrustful of, of normal tap water, of normal tap water, let alone tap water that has been converted from wastewater. So I want nothing to do with that whatsoever. Unfortunately, it is par for the course, one of the mill stuff for the absolute insane nutjob state that is Gavin Newsom's California. 40 allegations of plagiarism unearthed in complaint against Harvard's Claudine Gay. So if if you've been following the fallout from the three infamous ladies' congressional testimony a few weeks ago, you had Liz McGill at University of Pennsylvania, you had Claudine Gay at Harvard, and you had Sally Kornbluth at MIT. They had this 
absolutely galling and horrific congressional testimony where they unanimously failed to condemn calls for genocide against the Jews on their campuses. We've discussed that at length on this show. If you've been following the fallout of this, you probably noticed that Chris Rufo, a former guest on this show, was able to uncover that it looked like Claudine Gay, the dim-witted DEI president of Harvard University, actually looks like she plagiarized her way to the top. Now, Claudine Gay was already horrifically underpublished and undercredentialed for someone who is president of arguably the world's most famous and prestigious university. This is someone who has never published a book. She has published far fewer articles than most people of her stature. And now it looks like she plagiarized her way through. So the Harvard board had a decision to make recently. They called an emergency meeting in the aftermath of the congressional testimony in the aftermath of these allegations that were were surfaced by Chris Rufo and Aaron Sabarium and others. And they chose to keep Claudine Gay. This was Harvard's moment to draw a hard line in the sand and say that, you know what? Actually, our university is going down the wrong path. Actually, we are not Hamas University. Actually, we are Harvard University. We are the oldest university in America, founded literally in the 1630s by the Puritans of Massachusetts or whatnot there. And you know what? We think that we need to be led in a different direction there. But unfortunately, Harvard did not do that. They kept Claudine Gay around. Ultimately, these institutions really have to be just fully raised to the ground. We, we need new institutions in their place. Easier said than done, of course. And we should continue the hard, hard, strenuous work of trying to recapture these institutions one by one while, while we simultaneously seek to rebuild. But it's really hard to recapture the institutions when you have the boards of trustees at universities like Harvard keeping people like Claudine Gay. Speaking of Harvard, they also appear to have deleted and then republished to DEI-related web pages. So the entire ideology of DEI has properly come under the microscope. It's definitely since October 7th and all of the anti-Semitic protests that have propped up around the world, but really specifically since the, this congressional testimony, we have seen just fierce and in many ways nonpartisan or across-the-board pushback against the DEI regime, Harvard appeared for a, for at least a second there that it looked like that they were going to go along and actually diminish their DEI presence on campus. It seems like they have yet again bent the knee to their woke overlords, unfortunately, there. But it's worth reiterating that DEI is an issue that the right is winning on. This, this is an issue that if you look at the polling on this, if you look at the polling of Americans who say that they, act, that they actually believe in colorblind equality, in merits, no matter what the color of your skin or your sexual orientation or your immigration background or this or that, but like MLK, that you actually believe in someone's content of their character, the polling is overwhelming that the American people support that. They oppose the intersectional identity politics, DEI agenda. They oppose the notion that you should be promoted or demoted or not get a job or get a job or whatever simply because of your skin color there. Again, the mere fact that Harvard took Claudine Gay back after she was really on the ropes there says everything you need to know about Harvard, unfortunately. Navy vet beheaded a satanic temple statue. So uh, this is a weird story. This is, this is a weird story. So in the Iowa State Capitol, Iowa, of course, being governed by Kim Reynolds, who is a stalwart conservative. She is, is Ron DeSantis' probably number one biggest presidential backer at the moment there. 
Iowa has, has very quickly become a, a, a very red state. It was once a swing state. It's become very red. For, for some reason, and I actually don't know what the reason is, they, they had a, a statue to Satanism on Iowa State Capitol grounds. Presumably some Satanist group moved this, and someone, the sergeant arms, a judge, someone said that it was okay. Well, it's actually not okay, because if you want to look at what the First Amendment speaks of when it speaks of freedom of religion, this is a very astute point that the great legal scholar Hadley Arkes has made, I think, quite well over the years. There is not necessarily there in our constitutional structure and in the American way of life more generally, there is not this false equivalence between religion and irreligion. Rather, what there is, is a system by which, you know, if you are a Jewish or you are a Catholic, then you are allowed to live your lifestyle, that you, that you are not necessarily forced to live in a Protestant country that you might not necessarily agree with that. And, and that obviously extends, of course, to to, to Muslims or, or peaceful Muslims and, and Hindus, Buddhists, and all, all that as well. But there is no false equivalence between religion and irreligion. There is no false equivalence between religion and Satanism, which is obviously, is obviously not a religion no matter what its bizarre and cultic apologists may purport to be. So I have no idea how this got there in the first place. If I were a law clerk for a judge who had to issue this order, I would have strongly advised that monument never go up there. Having said that, we don't support vandalism on this show. It, I, I have no particular sympathy for someone who is going inside the Capitol for purposes of, of chopping off a statue. Yes, this is a, a morally egregious and disgusting statue. The way to get rid of it is to file proper litigation and channels such as that. You shouldn't be trying to do this there. I saw some conservatives try to fundraise off this for his legal defense fund. I don't know. I understand the impulse very much so there, but we don't really necessarily want to encourage this sort of behavior either. Finally, Asbury Park, New Jersey earns a perfect score in LGBTQ plus inclusivity ratings. Oh my God, it's time for inclusivity ratings again. Look, Asbury Park, New Jersey, New Jersey is a, is a blue state. Asbury Park, for those of us who are music fans, is virtually synonymous with the rocker Bruce Springsteen, who was actually the first concert I ever went to. I think I was in seventh or eighth grade. I remember seeing Bruce Springsteen play at the old Giant Stadium. It was one heck of a ninth there. Bruce Springsteen is a, is a liberal man. He, to this day, decades and decades after he was growing up there in Asbury Park, he remains closely affiliated with the city there. I, I have to believe that Bruce Springsteen had something to do with this. But the more important point here... Guys, wh why are we doing this? What is the purpose of publishing rankings like this? I mean, are you seriously someone who is is gay or quote-unquote transgender or whatever the rest of the LGBTQ alphabet soup entails? Are you really someone there who is sitting in a red state like a Tennessee, Texas, Oklahoma, and you see these rankings and you say to your partner, oh my God, I think it's time to relocate to Asbury Park, New Jersey. I, I mean, like, who was this for? You know, you know who it's for? The audience for this drivel, for this absolute drivel, is the Upper West Side progressive PhD holding white liberal elites, most of whom probably are heterosexual, by the way. Those are the kind of people that get off to this stuff. The audience for this is not necessarily the LGBT community. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.